Hello there and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad and I'm super happy today for two reasons. One of them is that I get to interview one of my mentors when it comes to writing about Bitcoin. I used to look up to Aaron Von Virdum and when I started writing for Bitcoin magazine in 2019, it was specifically because he was working on this book and he didn't have as much time to work on small articles, which I was starting to pick up. And in the beginning, it was super intimidating to interact with him and talk with him because he was above my level and he had access to developers who could explain to him how stuff works. And I was out there on my own trying to figure stuff out. But right now he has launched for a week now. It's been a week since you launched this. It's called the Genesis book. It's about the prehistory of Bitcoin. And we are here to talk about it, Aaron. So it's really good to finally have you. Yep, yep. Thanks for having me. Your hair looks great today. Congratulations on that. Yes, sir. We yes, had sir. to delay this by 30 minutes. This is some <laughs> backstage information because I wanted to wash it and dry it. <laughs> and he was like, okay, do it. No, no. You said that 80 minutes ago. You said, can we delay it 30 minutes because I need to wash and dry my hair? So we still had 50 minutes before the actual start time. But then you needed an extra 30. So, but it looks great. Good job. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to be sure that you're not going to wait for me. And I had to set everything up. And it's really good that we do this. Can you show the book and talk yeah. a bit about it? Because you have been working on this for at least four years. Uh, yeah, so like you said, I, I was already working on this. Uh, this, by the way, the one I'm holding right now. This was a present. This is a, a hardcover, which is not for sale yet, but someone made this sort of especially for me. For um, I had a book presentation meetup situation in Eindhoven last week. And this is actually the only copy of my own book I have right now, but you can order it on Amazon or Bitcoin Magazine store. And I did, but the only copy I had, I gave as a present away. So now this is the only copy and I'm still waiting for my, my own box of books to arrive uh yeah i've been working on this since you were at bitcoin magazine as you mentioned which sounds feels like ages ago it was ages ago so yeah i've been, I've been i started working on the book i started thinking about or at least taking the idea seriously or sort of starting my research early 2018 and uh at first this led to a series of articles the genesis files which I published on Bitcoin magazine. And yeah, basically since then throughout the years, I kept working on this and the end goal was always for it to become a book. So here we are. You could say six years all in all from sort of idea to product was six years. I mean, I did other things in the meantime. It wasn't like six years full time, but still it was a lot of time within these six years. Yeah, you went to a lot of conferences and I know how these participations take away most of your time to actually work on stuff. And it's yeah. demanding to travel, to moderate panels, to prepare that, to talk with the guests who will be on your panel and stuff like that. And you did a lot of moderating. Yes, panels or the conference circuits, but also I was in El Salvador for a while. I helped launch the print magazine at Bitcoin Magazine or relaunch the print magazine as the editor-in-chief while, while we were doing that. And just some miscellaneous articles here and there. And I do a podcast with Shorts Provost, Bitcoin Explained, like technical podcast. So there's other things going on in my sort of Bitcoin life, but the book has 
for the past six years been sort of my through threat like the the main thing on my mind of the you know the main products that i wanted project that i wanted to finish so here we are something that i appreciate about your book is the way in which you approached writing it because it has always been open it's not like you came up with it a week ago and nobody knew what you were working on when I interviewed Tour de Mister a couple of weeks ago and I published that episode and it turned out to be the most popular of this season, so far at least, mm -hmm. he told me that he had reviewed your book and he's super proud about it and it was an interesting read for him. And oh, I was nice. thinking, oh, that's super nice. And then he also wrote some nice words about the book, which you featured. You have words from, as in reviews, recommendations from Tour de Mister, from Giacomo Zucco, from Paul Stortz and Jameson Lop. And yes. I, I thought it's interesting because I had all of them on the podcast, but I haven't had you before. So it's good to have you. And congratulations on open sourcing this because I know it's not easy. I know sometimes it doesn't make you much money. I've also open sourced my magazine. And right. I, I know that it got more downloads than it got sales on Shopping Bit or Ellen Bits. But it's cool to know that the information is out there and it's going to outlive us, you know? Yeah, it was an interesting experiment for me anyways. I open sourced it in May at the Bitcoin 2023 conference in Miami. And the idea behind that for me was sort of, well, there were several ideas behind it, but one of them was in the book itself, there's a chapter on open source and the free software movement. And I really kind of make the case why free and open source software leads, or at least is likely to lead to the best quality, the best products. So at some point it just felt kind of weird to me to not apply that same logic to my own book. Like in the end, my, my, my goal was to write the best book I could that was sort of the main thing I care about of course it's nice to sell books and it's nice you know there's other things that are nice but the main thing for me was I just want to write the best book possible and given everything I know about open sourcing projects I I, I should just open source it there's not really any way I can't do that it just it just made natural sense for me uh yeah I so it is, of course, it's sort of a commercial gamble. Like if people can read it for free, why would they read the book? Well, my thesis is, my, my running thesis, which is yet to be proven or not, is if people like the book, they'll want to own it. They'll want to have it. Uh, so let's see. That's, that's, uh, but, but even also the other thing is if people can't afford the book for whatever reason, then I actually do prefer it if they read it for free rather than not read it at all. Like I, I would like it if people read the book, but uh, yeah, it is a commercial risk per experiment in that sense. It could also work in my benefit, right? It could also like if people read the book for free, maybe, and they like it, they'll, they might want to recommend it to friends and that, that's also a way to sort of get the word out about the book so it's yet to be seen how it will play out there's of course no way to test if it was a good idea commercially because you know then we would need to sort of have parallel worlds where in one world i didn't open source it and in one world i did but 
So we'll never know, but I, I, for me, it, it was the logical sense, uh, logical thing to do. So I did. If there is any background noise on my end, it's because I run this Antminer S9 space heater, which I got from Hash Vortex. Check them out. They do 3D printing and it's super cool. And it keeps me warm right now. I get to stay indoors in a t-shirt when it's pretty cold outside. And I wanted to remark that this is being broadcast live. It's on YouTube and I'm going to upload it later on audio only platforms. And we get some comments and there is Chris from Cedor who just found out that your book is open source. And he said, oh shit, better get my refund from Amazon now quickly. <laughs> Probably to buy more Bitcoin. Hey, it's possible. No comment on that. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, he he figured out the hack. Sounds like. But then the the problem then though is he can't put the book in his bookshelf, like behind him if he's ever on the stream and wants to look smart with all the books behind him. So he's got to make that trade off. Yeah, it's an entire industry, right? But people who want to look smart and they put books behind them. And right. then you ask them about the books and they're like, oh, it was nice, but they can't say anything more about it. But I think the context of this interview is very interesting because today we're expecting this decision from the SEC in regards to an ETF, which is an E-traded fund. I'm not sure what E stands for. I don't care to know. But the point is that if this ETF gets approved, we can basically differentiate between two parts of Bitcoin history. The pre-mainstream part, which if we get this approval today, is going to be until today. And whoever joins Bitcoin starting tomorrow and was not born later is going to be basically just some speculator who saw that this became a more or less safer investment. And I feel like some of the cypherpunk spirit is lost. And this is where I'm going right now. Because this, not this year, it's already 2024, but in September of last year, I've interviewed Phil Zimmerman. Mm -hmm. And I thought that interview was going to get 100,000 views or something from the Bitcoin community because it's huge. He was the first guy to employ Hal Finney. He has a very good knowledge of the cypherpunk scene. I published that one and it destroyed my ego. I realized it got like, what, 600 views on YouTube? And mm. I was thinking, what's wrong with this community? What happened? And now I realize that we don't care as much about the cypherpunk history of Bitcoin. If it was a Michael Saylor interview and it was all about going to $1 million, that could get maybe 10,000 views. I don't know. It's strange. Uh, you know, what do you want me to say? That is sort of the depressing truth that every content creator probably has to discover at some point. Most people at the end of the day want to get rich. That's what most people kind of care about. You know, feel smart, get rich. Uh, that will get the clicks, that will get the attention. However, I don't think we should, you know, get too depressing about no one caring about cypherpunks or no one care about any of this at all. I think it's still, you know, a topic. I, I mean, I hope at least uh, I've got, I've gotten a good responses to my book for one. And I do think it's something that people are interested in, in general, maybe not as much as, you know, you'll be a millionaire tomorrow, but it, it, 
you could also like compare to pre-Bitcoin, like before Bitcoin was around at all, people definitely didn't care about any of that stuff. Like it was really only this sort of internet niche nerd from the uh, cult, well, not cult, but a niche from the 90s. And no one cared about that at all. And at least since Bitcoin, and that may be in part because of the monetary incentive to get involved, but at least people now do get involved with these kinds of technologies and these kinds of ideas. And I do think that's also leading to more interest in sort of the broader story here. Like, why does this exist in the first place? Where did this all come from? And that, that is what I try to, you know, explain in my book. That is basically what my book is about. Yeah, and I really want to do a deep dive on the three main chapters of your book and maybe do a short summary, but summary means short, so I shouldn't say short summary. But before that, I got to give a shout out to the show's sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. They have this very cool Wabi-Sabi coin join engine, which has hundreds of inputs, hundreds of outputs, and together you can make your Bitcoin not 100% anonymous, but with a lot more plausible deniability. If you buy your Bitcoin from exchanges and you want to spend it on a peer-to-peer -peer market or on some sort of alternative market, it's a very good idea to coin join. And honestly, I use it because I receive donations sometimes on my website. And I don't want to use that Bitcoin with the identity of the donor. So I coin join it and it has this limbo state where it's simultaneously tainted and simultaneously clean. You don't know. And the fact that you don't know gives you pretty good privacy. And right now Wasabi Wallet also has this buy anything button that's embedded because there used to be a lot of FUD about CoinJoin Bitcoin not being usable in commerce. But now there's this backend that they set up with Shop and Bit. Basically, you type into that terminal what you want to buy. You get a response from this sales agent from the concierge service of Shop and Bit. You can buy anything from Aaron's book to a Toyota Supra, which I'm planning to do at some point in the future. And it's a lot more private than usual shopping experience only because it's routed by a tour and you don't get to deal with big tech tracking you because it's within your Bitcoin wallet interface. It's pretty cool. Give it a try. It's free to download. The coin joins are not free, but the remixes don't pay fees to the coordinator. Anyway, this was a long ad. Let's take a deep dive, Aaron, because I have your book open and this looks like a Google Drive. Let me figure out how to share the screen. Oh yeah, it's a button here, start screen sharing. Window, the Genesis book, go. So we have about, introduction, foundations, cypherpunks and Bitcoin. These are the five parts of your book. Let's well, start with... it, yeah, I guess. Oh, there's more. To I mean, about isn't really a part of the book. Well, although, no, sure. Go on. Go on. Yes, you're actually right. Go on. It's, yeah, not part, it's not part of the story, but yes, it is in the book. Okay. Or at least some of it is. <laughs> the, the, about is also sort of about these documents, but go on. Let's talk about the introduction, what you mm -hmm. wrote here and what this means to you. 
Do you want me to riff? Sure. Okay. Yeah, so the introduction chapter is about uh, Eagold. So that was Douglas Jackson's payment system that he created in, uh, was it 1995, I think? It's in the text. Is it? Is it 1995? <laughs> I think I got it right, but I'm not 100% sure. Anyways, around that time. And what Douglas Jackson wanted to create was cash for the internet, a form of money for the internet. The way he did that, his idea of doing that was he was a big, he was a gold bug essentially. So he, he'd studied monetary economics and he'd come to the conclusion that fiat currency is not, um, is, is not a good way of doing money. It's harmful for the economy. So he wanted, and he was, so he, he found gold as a better alternative. But he wanted to create gold for a digital age. And the way he figured of doing that was he um, issued gold-backed tokens, essentially. So he go he issued gold-backed digital tokens. You could, you could put it that way. This was completely centralized, though. So the, the ownership of these tokens that was all maintained by a central server and this gold that was backed in vaults. There were, uh, he had several vaults, though. But still, it was all owned by the same entity. So then if you owned a specific number of these tokens, you could actually exchange them for the equivalent amount of gold. Or if you want to send these tokens to someone, you can send it from account to account. And this could be done fairly anonymously. So this was the product that he built and the company that he was running. And it was going fairly well for a while until the company got raided and eventually de facto shut down. He was sued, his company was sued, eventually had to, he, he decided to settle in court. Um, you know, that's uh, this American legal system where they threaten you with decades of prison time or some sort of semi-reasonable settlement. So it is, he decided to settle, but he still was convicted to like six months of house arrest uh, with like an ankle brace or I think one and a half years of house arrest of which six months with was, an, was with an ankle brace uh, his legal costs had run up to like a million dollars or more to like seven figures worth anyways uh, after that he wasn't allowed to run the company anymore because now he was a convicted felon long story short he was trying to offer people a new form of money and got completely hammered so that's what happens when you try to do something like that. So that's the intro chapter of my book. And the reason I made that the intro chapter is to sort of start out by explaining or showing why it's easier said than done to create a digital form of money, create a digital alternative for fiat currency. It's actually not that easy at all. The US government will come after you and completely, you know, hammer you down uh, with everything they have. So that's the intro chapter. And the intro chapter then ends by sort of making the case that, but so, um, yeah, I think ultimately bit, uh, sorry, Eagles got shut down in 2008. 
like the raid happened in 2005 and then the ultimate shutdown of the company was 2008 and that was around that the same time that Satoshi Nakamoto was already building an alternative. So it sort of sets the stage for, all right, why was Bitcoin designed the way it was? It was designed very differently than eGold, obviously. And maybe also why did Satoshi decide to re remain anonymous? Because now you see what happens if you, you know, try to create something like that and you're not anonymous. Yeah. But yeah, it sets the stage for the rest of the book. It's, it's sort of uh, the way I've compared it is um, like in the first scene of the original Star Wars, you've got this fleet of the Empire, you know, chasing this small rebel ship. And you got, you got to first see the force of what happens when you try to offer an alternative before you sort of can start the story and, you know, why where did Bitcoin actually come from? That's a nice metaphor. I was reading the chat and there's Arthur Khan and he says he's looking for a PDF for EPUB because he wants to send it to a friend and he's also willing to make a donation to your address. And I told him that there's a donation page in the about section of the book, not mm -hmm. a donation page or a donation address. Yeah, just a general uh, ebook that will come soon ish i don't have a date for you yet it's all it's all being rolled out you know we start with the paperback and from there it's sort of step by step the rest will come as well yeah i see that the paperback is 29 dollars on amazon check right. it out if you think that this introduction was interesting but you also have a chapter that's called foundation and it it's not a chapter it's a part and you have right. seven chapters inside of it, <clears throat> going yes. from spontaneous order free and open source software and all the way to eCash and the extropians. Can you give an overview of what's happening here? Yes. So the book consists of three parts. So we had the introduction and then after that, there's three parts to the book. Part one is foundations, as you just mentioned. Part two is cypherpunks, part three is Bitcoin. So what's part one is really about it's uh, yeah laying the groundwork for for everything that's to come. Um, specifically, part one consists of two storylines, you could say. So there's one storyline which focuses on economics and economic history, and one storyline that focuses on. Uh, hacker culture and tech technical part of the history. Specifically, the economic part um, is told from the perspective of Friedrich Hayek. So he was an Austrian economist. And the reason that Hayek is this uh, has this big role in my book is because I think his ideas on monetary policy are they, they really embed Bitcoin, for one. They're, they're very relevant to Bitcoin. And two, he inspired some of the figures you'll meet later on in the book. So some of the cypherpunks, for example. So, part, so that's sort of one leg of the first part. And then the other leg is the technical part. And that dives into the history of, like I mentioned, the emergence of the hacker culture and how from there on um, the crypto graphic revolution um, starts in the 70s, which leads to 
the first form of electronic cash, which was in the early 90s, which was David Schaum who, who launched that. And then it all sort of comes together in the extropian movement. So the extropian movement was a utopian, futurist, transhumanist movement that was very um, inspired or they, they had a lot of hope for the potential of technology and what it would allow humanity to do. So one of the core things they were aiming for was, for example, external life by curing all disease and curing old age and that way you can live forever. But they had this wide range of ideas, uh, nanobot technology that would create all kinds of interesting things, uh, mind uploading, cloning, space colonization. And they were taking these ideas seriously, but at the same time, and at the same time, uh, they, the way they believed it could be realized was by letting the free market run its course in a way. So they were very libertarian and they were very inspired by Hayek, who I already mentioned. So they thought the best way to achieve this future is to sort of structure the society and the economy in, in a Hayekian way. And at some point, one of the extropians, Halvini, as many Bitcoiners will have heard of, he started to promote digital cash within that movement. So he had heard of the digital cash project that David Chalm was working on, and he started to promote that within the extropian movement as a way to sort of get government out of your finances. Like if the goal is to get government out of your life, you want to get government out of you know, your finances. You don't want the government to know who you're paying, when, where, etc. And this idea really resonated with the extropians. And so much so that some of the extropians, like founder Max Moore, they started to figure, wait a minute, we can use this digital cash technology, not just for privacy, but also to realize it's sort of Hayekian idea of free banking. So they, that, that's where these ideas started to really merge. So the economic part of the book and the technical part of the book sort of come together in the last chapter of that part. And then from the extropians, we moved to the cypherpunks. So several of the extropians also became cypherpunks. Also a bunch of hackers, like the cypherpunks was a collection of like, yeah, extropians, hackers, privacy activists. And so that's sort of the logical step. And that part two really tells the story of the cypherpunks and uh, what they were trying to achieve, as well as some of the specific projects they were working on. So some of the specific electronic cash projects they were proposing and the, the people that were proposing them. You did a little bit of foreshadowing for part two of the book, mm -hmm. which is specifically about cypherpunks and their projects. But before we get into that, I got to talk about CryptoSteel, which is the other sponsor of the show. They have been around for longer than 10 years now. They launched in 2013 and they create these metal plates. And they're not just plates, they're also devices like the CryptoSteel capsule, where you can put your passwords, you can put your seed phrases, you can put your passphrases, Noster, private keys, whatever you want. You put it there, you drill a hole into a wall, and then you put that and it's going to be there for a long time. Just don't forget to get that when you move or you switch houses or whatever. And if you use promo code BTCTKVR, you're going to get 10% discount on any order from their website. 
So thank you guys for sponsoring and think about backing up your seed in a way that is more durable and can withstand natural disasters. So Aaron, let's get to the second part of your book, which is cypherpunks. And you have one, two, three, four, five, six chapters. There's one that introduces the cypherpunk movement, another one that talks about cypherpunk currency. And then you talk about these projects, Hashcash, Bitgold, Bmoney, and reverse, uh, reusable, not reverse, reusable proof of work. Yep. Do you have a question? Do you want me to riff? Of course, I want you to riff. Yes. Uh, okay. So yeah, the cypherpunks, um, as I just mentioned, came from. Well, let's let's start where they started. So the cypherpunks, uh, it started with Tim May and Eric Hughes. Tim May was a physicist at Intel who had retired at a relatively young age, like in his thirties. Well, Eric Hughes was a hacker from California, I believe. And he actually worked at Xiaomi's uh, digital cash startup for a little while. But he came, he became disillusioned by some of the choices that Xiaomi was making and the, the directions that that company was headed in. So he, he moved back. And then him and Tim May, they met. Uh, basically because Eric Hughes was thinking of moving to the same seaside town as where Tim May lived. But when they met, they started to talk about cryptography. So cryptography was, as I mentioned, public key cryptography anyways, was invented in the 70s uh, by Whitfield, Whitfield, Tiffy, and Martin Hellman. And it sort of in, unleashed this revolution in the field. Uh, different cryptographers were coming up with all kinds of different, you know, cryptographic tools that, that were new and revolutionary at that time. So that includes public key cryptography, but, you know, Ralph Merkel came up with the Merkle trees. David Chaum came up with like um, remailers or, or the concepts that, that today Tor uses essentially to, to be able to send messages messages anonymously, uh, as well as digital cash, of course. And, and there were a bunch more uh, cryptographers, cryptographers coming up with these kinds of tools. However, Tim and May, when they met in the early 1990s, they were very interested and fascinated by all these ideas and all this potential, but they also found that nothing was actually implemented. So they were ideas within circles of academia and universities, but no one was actually using any of this. And as the internet was becoming a real thing around this time, they thought it was time to change this. So they both collected or invited um, a number of friends of theirs. Uh, John Gilmore was the first one. Uh, and then basically the three of them, you could say, they, they started to invite more friends of theirs to a meeting. So that became the first cypherpunk meeting. Me meeting. And they would discuss how to actually implement these tools and how to actually bring them to the public. So again, this includes remailers and these kinds of things. And the most, the, the core idea or the most, you know, the key thing, the key technology that they were tr trying to realize was digital cash. That was the thing they thought would unleash a lot of potential on the internet. Keep in mind, this was in an era where it wasn't clear yet how the internet would actually be funded. 
like nowadays, you know, you just read a couple of ads. Nowadays, most of the internet is funded through ads. But back then, that was not obvious at all. People thought that maybe you would pay for every website. or So um, So the cypherpunks wanted to create a form of digital cash that you could use anonymously. So that's, uh, and, and then in one of the chapters you mentioned, there's a chapter called cypherpunk currency. And in that chapter, I really detail how they were sort of thinking about this, like the, the, the thought process of, these guys, the debates they were having on the Cypherpunks uh, mailing lists, which you can still read the archives. So I, I spent a lot of time reading these archives and the types of discussions and the, the way they were thinking about this, like, should it be backed? Uh, should it not be backed? Should it be considered money? Should it be considered something else? Like, what are we actually doing here? So that's what that chapter is about. And then, yeah, in the next chapters, I kind of, uh, go in depth of in, into four of the specific um, cypherpunk, you know, digital cash projects that either existed or were proposed. And I think if you read these, I, I, if you if you look into how these projects either worked or were supposed to work, they weren't all implemented. Then you can really see this sort of step by step process towards Bitcoin. Like that's kind of the essence or that's sort of the main, you know, idea behind the book is that Bitcoin didn't just appear out of nothing. That That's still kind of a popular belief sometimes. But no, I think if you study the history, you study this project, you can really see that it sort of evolved from one project to the next and it sort of inched closer, closer and closer to Bitcoin. Yeah, the popular narrative is that Satoshi was this time-traveling genius or this alien or this AI. I mean, that or... might still all be true. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Let's fuel the conspiracy theories. Something you... that I find interesting in your presentation is that you separated eCash and David Chom from the cypherpunks. Mm -hmm. You have... David Chom in the foundations and the DigiCash project and the corporation, which got very close to sealing a very cool deal that could <clears throat> revolutionize internet payments and make them a lot more private than they are today. We could have had these federations and mints that enable more anonymous payments online, but instead we got Chom and his ego who decided to not sell out. But I, I do understand him from a certain point of view. And then you spoke about these guys like Tim May and Derek Hughes and John Gilmore who decided to start the cypherpunk movement after they became disillusioned with that. And that's certainly interesting. But what did you write about Bitgold and reusable proof of work? Because these projects and also Hashcash because these projects are certainly very close to Bitcoin. If you put them all together, you get essentially 99% of what Bitcoin is today. Yeah, so, so to first address the first point, that yeah, eCash, DigiCash, Chomps project was definitely before, uh, before the cypherpunks and it was a big inspiration for the cypherpunks. But David Chaum was never a cypherpunk himself. He actually didn't really like that movement that much. He thought they were too radical. And the other way around, the cypherpunks, or at least some of them, weren't very happy with Chaum. Like, even though he was a big inspiration, uh, there was also, 
So David Chalmers patented his technology. So he had patented the the blind signature technology that his digital cash scheme relied on. And because of this patent, the cypherpunks couldn't freely experiment with his technology. And they were sort of finding that there was sort of this, uh, you know, on the one hand, this guy offered this great potential, but at the same time, he's now sort of stifling this potential because his company isn't really coming from the ground. And he's also not allowing other people to experiment with it. So, so yeah, the, the, David Chalmers and the Cypunks really are separate uh, parts of the story, or they should be in separate parts of the book, I think, which is why I put them in separate separate parts. The other question was about Hashcash, Arpao, Bitgold, B-Money. That's the fourth one. Yeah. Um, what, do, your question, did you have a question or are we are we still riffing? Flat. Riffing, sir. <laughs> riffing. All right, yeah. So the first one of these was Hashcash. So again, keep in mind, until this point, so Hashcash was proposed in 1997. Until this point, the main way to think about digital cash was through the centralized system, essentially. So eCash, which David Chown built, was made for banks, was designed for banks. So banks would offer this to customers, but the eCash itself was still backed by fiat currency in the bank, whether that's euros or dollars or whatever, whatever fiat currency a bank is using. Um, and then Hashcash comes along, which was at first meant to be postage. So why was postage needed? Because so again, we're talking like mid 1990s and spam was becoming a real problem. So spam was becoming a problem on the cypherpunks mailing list, but maybe even more so, it was becoming a problem for remailers. So I just mentioned remailers. This was this technology that David Chaum came up with and um, a way to anonymously send emails. But the, and the, the, these were run by implemented and run by some of the cypherpunks. But these servers, these remailer servers, these were spammed a lot. So either they were being used to spam people, or maybe it was just some sort of denial of service attack on these servers themselves to spam it with all kinds of nonsense constantly and make them unusable. So to solve that problem, the cypherpunks wanted to create something aching to postage so that it would cost something to send an email and what adam back came up with was hashcash so the way hashcash works is essentially in order to send an email you must use that email to make uh what to hash on it so to make calculations you could say and only some of these calculations only some of the the hashes are valid so if you send a valid hash along with your email, you've now proven that you've done calculations and therefore you've proven that you've, uh, you know, burned some resources on your computer. Anyone who wants to receive an email will then check if these, if, if it has a pro- valid proof of work, if it has a valid hash cache, if it has a valid postage, and if not, it's just rejected. If it's valid, it's accepted. Now, the reason this works is because anyone who wants to send an email will just have to do like these two, three seconds of calculations, not a big deal. 
but a spammer usually wants to send millions of emails in order to be profitable. If you have to send millions of emails and do these calculations millions of times, now all of a sudden it's costing a lot of money, a lot of resources, a lot of work to do it, and it's not profitable anymore. So this was called Hashcast. This was something that Adam Beck came up with uh, and proposed on the Cyberpunk's mailing list. But as he did as he did that, it also became evident to, to some of the Cyberpunks, including Adam himself, that this also introduced something akin to digital scarcity. So while normally anything digital can be copied very easily, you know, infinite times basically with proof of work um there's real world resources that you have to invest in order to create it so real energy something physical that's actually you know real so it's not as easy to copy it's not not as easy to create and this core concept then provided the foundation for several several of the other uh, digital cash projects that came after it. So that includes BitGold, uh, includes um, BeMoney, as well as RPOW. All three use this, you know, hashing, this sort of proof of work, and, and Bitcoin, of course, if we want to skip ahead. But all three use this proof of work concept as a way to create currency. Yeah, I think from what I've read about these projects, it's BitGold that was 90% of what Bitcoin is. But what BitGold was missing was basically, this was Adam Back's explanation of it. So I didn't get this deep in terms of reading whatever code was published. But Adam Back basically said that what Bitcoin did, and nice pun, by the way, what Bitcoin did compared to BitGold was to have a proper inflation schedule. Because BitGold was relying on times of high demand and times of low demand. And sometimes you would have a lot of blocks getting issued and a lot of activity happening. And then you wouldn't have it at all. And the system could not figure out how to mitigate this situation. And of course, there was also the fact that all of the cypherpunks who designed this were thinking about servers. They did not consider this whole blockchain idea yeah I, well i would kind of disagree with that i do think bitcoins had something aching to a solution for the problem you just described so if you want me to get into the technicals the way bitgold works was you start out with a candidate string is what it was called and then everyone can hash on this candidate string if you find a valid hash then the hash becomes yours. Now it's your hash. And you can send it to someone else by signing a message that says, now it goes from my public key to that public key. So kind of similar to Bitcoin, right? Uh, also, whenever someone finds a valid hash, that hash becomes the new candidate string that everyone else can hash on until they find a, candidate, a new hash and then everyone can hash on that. And that's how you sort of keep going. So that's also starting to resemble you know, how Bitcoin works with the blockchain. Now, the problem that I think Adam would have been alluding to is that it becomes easier over time to produce new hashes. So right now, uh, you know, b because of the, how fast computers are, 
it would maybe take, I don't know, an hour to create a valid hash, but then computers in 10 years can do it in like 10 minutes, whatever. Like they can do it, computers become faster, uh, computing resources become cheaper. So over time it becomes cheaper and cheaper to produce valid hashes. So in that sense, in that way you get inflation in the system. If it gets easier and easier to create new money, you get inflation, inflation is no good. Now, Bitgold, Nixabo did come up with a solution for this though, sort of. So his solution was, we'll let people trade these valid hashes against each other. So there's a marketplace for these hashes. So that means, I just gave the example, I think a hash today would take an hour, a hash in 10 years would take 10 minutes. So then presumably if these hashes are traded against each other on the market, then one today hash would cost six 10 years from now hashes. One 2024 hash would cost, would trade for six 2034 hashes. And that's how these hashes establish a market price against each other. Now the new problem is you don't have fungibility. So you can't open a store and say, I'm gonna sell my shoes for one hash because every hash is worth a different different value. So that doesn't work. You know, you want money to be fungible. You want every currency unit of the same denomination to be worth, you know, have the same purchasing power. So then what Nexabo came up with is we'll create a second layer essentially. So, you know, again, today we have the Lightning Network sidechains. He, he kind of came up with a similar idea back in the nineties of a second layer. And the second layer will consist of banks and these banks will have like provable reserves, that kind of stuff. And these banks will actually start to collect the, the, these different hashes into buckets that are all worth the same. So in my example that I gave earlier, a bank could have one bucket with one 2024 hash and one bucket with six 2034 hashes. And then the buckets are worth the same. And now these buckets are sort of divided into 10,000 currency units or whatever. And these are issued to customers of these banks. So now you have fungibility on the second layer where people can start to train and, uh, trade and use these coins for you know regular commerce. Once you have 10,000 coins, you can go to the bank and you can say, hey, I want one of these buckets and then I'll send you, you know, a bucket of hashes essentially. But so that is a way that he sort of solved that problem. The real problem with Bitgold, I would say, was that there was no way to stop double spending. There was no way to figure out. So, so if you sign a hash, you know, you spend a hash, you send it to someone else, you can just do that twice. You can do that to twice, you know, to two recipients, or you do it to yourself or to someone else, whatever. And now you've doubled your money. So that requires a solution. And Nexabo's solution was to use sort of a system of servers so sort of quasi decentralized idea he didn't want it to be a central party so he came up with this idea where several servers would sort of all keep track of it and they would have it's susceptible to civil attacks like if one guy can just join the system of servers run 10,000 servers whatever and just outvote everyone else and now that guy can cheat and the example didn't really have a solution for that. So that part was kind of hand waved away. He sort of suggested that people could kind of just monitor what the servers are doing 
and then everyone can decide for themselves. Like if there is discrepancy between the servers, then everyone can decide, well, that's that these servers are being honest and these are not. And then he figured the market will probably find the right solution and they'll probably want to follow the, the honest servers. But this problem in itself has, you know, lots of problems. Like if you've been offline or if you're a new user and there's already this discrepancy, then how can you possibly know which side to trust? So it, it wasn't a solved problem. But I think that was actually the main, the main problem that Bitcoin had. It didn't have this decentralized consensus system that Bitcoin, of course, has. That was actually one of the best explanations I've heard of it Good. since I started researching the topic. It's refreshing to get this. I found out something new today. And I also want to talk about Hashcash and B-Money. Mm -hmm. And... Also reusable proof of work because that one ended up not becoming part of Bitcoin for some reason. And I guess we can get into that. But before that, I have to present another advertisement because as you mentioned, Aaron, the internet today is funded by ads. There is SatoChip, which provides you three solutions. One is called SatoChip and is a hardware wallet on a smart card. The other one is Sadodime, which turns your Bitcoin into bearer asset. And they also have Seed Vault, which is a way for you to keep your coins into cold storage for a longer time. They're pretty affordable. They're made in Belgium, as far as I know. It's an interesting solution, which is about 25 euro. And if you use promo code BTCTKVR, you also get a discount if you go to their website. It's a really interesting solution. I'm going to have them on the show next week to explain more about how this works. And the other ad that I must present is for iVPN, which is a VPN. Everyone hears about VPNs on YouTube these days. There are lots of advertisements out there for ExpressVPN, for Surfshark, for whatever. What's different about iVPN is that it generates accounts that are numerical. So you get a string of numbers and letters, then that's your account. You can use that on up to six or seven devices, as far as I know, for iVPN Pro. And you can pay with Lightning. So the VPN provider only possibly knows your IP address when you connect, but iVPN keeps no logs, has been around for about 20 years and has accepted Bitcoin payments for 10. As far as I know, they're... OG Bitcoiners, they care about privacy, and you can get a free trial. Use your burner email that you use for trolling and send an email to trial at ivpn.net and you're going to get a 30 days trial so you can see how this works and figure it out for yourself. So thank you for sitting through this, Aaron. Let's talk about, I guess, B-Money, because to me, if I read the B-Money white paper or whatever they call it. It's by Wei Dai, and it sounds a lot like what Ethereum turned into eventually. Oh, wow, yeah. Well, um, oh, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I have not made that link so directly. But there's there's some something to say for that. Um, yeah, well, the, the key insight for me with B-Money was... There, so B-Money came out fairly shortly after, or it never came out, actually. It was only ever a proposal like Bitgold. 
but it was proposed shortly shortly after Zabos, uh, after Bitgoals. And it was pretty similar, I would say, but it was also very hand wavy. Like it was not, it was far from a finished, you know, design or products. And one of the key insights for me, why two things to mention about it. One is why I had a very different idea about monetary policy of the system. So I explained to you how Bitcoin would have worked and that there were other eCash systems that would have basically been backed by fiat. And um, why I had this idea that money should be stable, the purchasing power of money should be stable. So this is a very mainstream idea, of course, nowadays, like most economists would make this argue, uh, would make this argument that, you know, you take a basket of goods and then over time, the same amount of money should buy the same amount of, you know, the same share of this basket of goods, essentially, which is an idea that originated from Fisher and the stabilizers in the early 20th century, which is also, it's a whole part of my book and why Hayek agrees with this. But I'll skip that for now because we're talking about B-Money. But why I had this idea for electronic cash, uh, although he didn't really figure out how to actually make that work. What he did propose is he proposed sort of two ideas. So I mentioned that one of the big problems with BitGold was this ownership registry. So this, uh, the, the servers that keep track of who owns what to prevent double spending. And YDI introduced a new idea, which was, well, he introduced two ideas. One idea was very much like an ownership registry, and I'll get back to that in a bit. But the other idea, the bigger idea for me in the context of Bitcoin, is that he also proposed the other thing we can do is everyone keeps track of balances. So everyone's going to be a node in the network. Everyone's going to keep track of which transactions are being sent to who and which transactions came first. And everyone's going to have this registry personally. So that way, no one can double spend you because you're keeping track of your, you know, you know what everyone owns. Now, again, this wasn't actually a solved problem, really, because different people could still have different ideas of who owns what. But it was definitely interesting and original. Now, his main idea is his first idea, like I said, he had two ideas. The other idea was very much like an ownership registry. And that idea... Um, kind of so the way this registry was supposed to be kept honest was through something aching to a proof of stake system so that's what you're referring to with ethereum i would imagine there's something no, else there, there's also the part about contract and computations yeah 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 you're right that's the part yeah you're right that... it's kind of obvious because i'm not much into ethereum but i know that their lowest denomination is called the gui or something yeah, but one of them is also called like the Zabo and the Hell or the Finny, right? They they just sort of give attribute to all these guys, don't they? Yeah, I think. I, I don't. I mean, I would, I don't keep track of Ethereum either. But uh, yes, that is interesting to mention. That actually both Bitgold and Ydai, uh, B Money, they both had a pretty strong focus on smart contracts. So Ydai as well. Zabo, of course, came up with the idea of smart contracts. Like it was his 
he co he coined the term. And then Wideye also had a very strong uh, focus on smart contracts when he first proposed B money. This itself comes from Tim May's ideas about crypto anarchy. So uh, there's there's a chapter in the book that that explains the the cypherpunk history and the cypherpunks had sort of different um, degrees of radicalism. You could sort of say there were pretty moderate cypherpunks or even leftist cypherpunks, but then there were also the very libertarian or even anarcho-capitalist types. And Tim May was sort of a representative of them, you could say. And their whole point, their whole goal, what they wanted to achieve was essentially get rid of states, just undermine the state by allowing people to evade taxes, for example. That was a big one. But then Nick Zabo, he believed the only way you can reasonably do that, the only way you can actually achieve that is you gotta um, you, you gotta offer some of the same services that the state offers. So for example, contract law. So you gotta re-implement contract law in a digital environment. So this is why Wydai, for example, was so focused on enabling smart contracts. Like it was one of the main goals of him to create digital cash in the first place is to enable this, this, this smart contract solution. So in that sense, uh, at least narrative-wise, it resembles Ethereum. I don't think there was actually anything about the design that necessarily resembles Ethereum. Although they did have both, they did both have this proof of stake idea. Wydai had a very preliminary idea of proof of stake, sort of to get the to keep these servers honest. They would also they would all have to deposit some of their some coins in some you know wallets, and if they were cheats, then these coins could be taken away. However, again, this is very hand wavy because who gets to decide that the servers were dishonest if it's not the servers themselves? Like, who's enforcing this penalty? So it wasn't a very full fledged idea. It was a, it was a loose idea. It was a rough idea. And for me, the most interesting thing about B money in a Bitcoin context is, is that it introduced this idea of instead of a centralized registry or even a federated registry will just have every user keep track of the state of the system. Yeah, it's certainly interesting how this idea from 1998, I think, ended yeah, up- Yeah, Bitgold was 1998 and I think B-Money as well because it was a month later. So unless it was December, January, but I'm pretty sure it's both 98. According to the Nakamoto Institute, I'm looking on their page, they have this B money paper and it's dated November of 1998. Okay, yeah, uh, sounds right to me. I, yeah, I'm sure it's in the book somewhere. I'm looking it up now, but uh, 98 sounds good to me. If you find it, you can also mention the page for people who are about to buy it. Should probably be early in that chapter, right? Let's see. But you can keep going. I'll, I'll, I'll look at my book in the meantime. Yeah, there are a lot of people who claim that Hal Finney is the most likely candidate to be Satoshi Nakamoto. And Hal Finney worked on this concept, which is called reusable proof of work, RPOW, or call it what you want. But it's very different from what Bitcoin turned out to become. And this idea of reusing the proof of work did not become part of Bitcoin. So can you talk a bit more about this and what 
reusable proof of work is? Yeah, so uh, ARPAO, as you pronounce it, I mean, yeah, it stands for reusable proof of work. Um, was an idea by Helvini, and he had a. What's kind of interesting is he went back to a centralized system. So he went back to a centralized design. Again, the main problem you're trying to solve is double spending, really. And so you had Nexabo sort of, you know, thinking out loud about this sort of federated system, and then. Why die? He had this idea of everyone keeps track of it. Helvini actually went back to a centralized system, centralized design. But importantly, that did not mean that the central server had to be trusted. The central server could be taken offline, of course, and then the system disappears altogether because the only server is gone. But the central server could not cheat. So why could the central server not cheat? It could not cheat because it was using free and open source software. And it was using something called, uh, oh, the term is slipping my mind, remote attestation. Uh, there was also another term they were using, but what it means is you've got the server, it's running open source software, and then this server has a specific chip and this chip can sign this software and anyone can check this signature. Any user of the server, anyone who communicates with the server can therefore check that the server is running the exact free and open source software that Helvini or the owner of the server says it's running. So the server would, this software would, this free and open source software would show, you know, there's no double spending going on. The only way that I'm going to issue coins if there's proof of work for it. So to explain that a little bit, if you want to earn coins, the, the server gives you a proof of work assignment. And if you complete it, you get the coins. So anyone can check that that's the only coins into existence are the coins that are issued by this free and open source software and that it's all operating the way as, as it should be. So this does work very differently than Bitcoin, but I still think that's actually also an, an important you know part of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is also free and open source software, of course, which there's another chapter in my book sort of detailing where it all, where that all came from. And it's important that it is because that's how we know there won't be more than 21 million coins, for example. That's how we know that we can trust the system is because there's people that can actually check and verify this free and open source software. So Helvini was leveraging that as well, just in a very different way. Maybe the more interesting thing about ARPO, or I don't know if it's more interesting, but the other interesting thing about ARPO is that it came out pretty late. It really came out at a time where most of these guys, most of the cypherpunks had sort of given up on, uh, on the idea of digital cash. And Helvini, there were, there were very few people that seemed to still be interested in still trying to create something like this. So Helvini was one of them. Uh, so this was in 2005. So yeah, that's probably why people consider him a Satoshi Nakamoto candidate, which by the way is not something I get into in, in my book. But yeah, because he was still interested in that stuff when most people seem to have given up. Interesting. So you're saying that Halfini went back to a centralized model, which I did not really consider so far. 
And the distinction that you made is very useful for people who are not very much into the details. But you said that Nick Saba was a lot into federations and Wei Dai was into making everyone verify what everyone else is doing. And Halfini created this return to a centralized model, but using some sort of coprocessor. He details it on the RPOW page, which is maintained by the Nakamoto Institute. So shout out to Michael Goldstein and Piero Shard, because I know that they're behind this project for maintaining this. And it's it's certainly interesting how you, you find these differences, but basically Bitcoin is a combination of all these proposals. But more than this, it adds proof of work as a layer. And this was created by Adam Back for Hashcash. And this was before B-Money, before Bitgold. It was 96, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, sorry, are, you, are we back to Hashcash? Yeah. Let's yeah, that was, that was 97. It. 97. Mm -hmm. Why do you think we don't use Hashcash right now for our emails? Why did it not get traction? Uh, so what, what I describe in the book, this is true for several digital cash projects, really, is why don't we use them or why didn't they uh, catch on? And Hashcash is a very clear example of this. It's because you have this chicken and egg problem you don't want to be rejecting emails that don't have enough hashcash if no one is using hashcash. Meanwhile, there's no reason to start including hashcash in your emails if no one is rejecting your emails anyways. So you need to sort of get off. On, on either side, there's no incentive to start doing it, and therefore no one ever starts doing it. This is, as I mentioned, chicken and egg problem. There's um, but there were some projects that implemented it. Uh, from the top of my mind, it was Apache had a uh, implemented Hashcash, and it's in the book. Microsoft had a system called Spam Assassin. I might be confusing these two names, and they implemented it. And there's been more recent examples as well. I recently heard that Tor started using a version of Hashcash for some aspects of its design. So there are applications for it, not to mention Bitcoin, obviously. Uh, but the main reason it didn't really catch on at the time, I would say, is, you know, it's this chicken and egg problem. Yeah, I was going to get to that part where Tor, because it has been under DDoS attacks for longer than a year, Mm -hmm. They decided to integrate some sort of Hashcash-like proof-of-work system. Yes, yeah, that was like half a year ago or so, or even more recently, maybe. I think it was more recently. Yeah. But anyway, you mentioned that in your book, you don't get into speculation about who Satoshi Nakamoto might be. You just present the facts. I mean, I treat Satoshi Nakamoto like... Um, a, a, a uh, you know, like a character, like any other. Like as far as I'm concerned, he's Satoshi Nakamoto. Of course, I do mention that it's almost certainly a pseudonym. I do mention it's quite possible that he was active on the Cypherpunks mailing list and just uses a different name for his Bitcoin project. I do sort of mention it, 
but that's kind of it. Like, I don't think it's necessary for the story to dox him. Um, also, I think doxing is unethical in, in the first place, so I have no ambition to do that. But I don't think it's necessary. It's pretty clear to me that Satoshi Nakamoto wanted to be anonymous or pseudonymous. So I see no reason to not respect that. I did try to reach out to him, but that he didn't answer. Also, also his emails are defunct nowadays, apparently. They, they just bounce. Um, what else was I going to say on this topic? The topic of... Yeah, I so I end my book actually with Satoshi leaving. I do think that's... So my book ends where Bitcoin begins, right? It's, it's the prehistory of Bitcoin. It's really where Bitcoin came from. It's the ideas that, that, that sort of uh, shapes Bitcoin. And then when Bitcoin is launched, the book ends with the one exception of Satoshi leaving. That's really the last part of the last chapter. And I included that because I consider that his, his final touch, that's Satoshi's final touch of creating Bitcoin was leaving. Um, on a technical level, it wouldn't have mattered if Satoshi stayed around. Like Bitcoin is decentralized. People run the software on their own computers. Uh, they'll upgrade or not whenever they want to. There's no one in charge. There's no one to dictate that kind of stuff. So even if Satoshi was around, that would still all be true. However, as, uh, as my friend Jonathan Corgan likes to say, humans will human. And on a human level, I do think it would have mattered a lot. Humans gonna human? I think that's the saying. Humans gonna human. So on a human level, having the founder around would have had a lot of impact, I think, on how, you know, how people sort of treat the system. And they, he would have had this sort of natural authority that a truly decentralized system shouldn't have. So I think it's good that he stayed anonymous. I have no intention to dox him. And I think it's you know, pretty brilliant that he left and left the, left, left the system in the hands of the users. It's fun the way in which you put it, that you have no intention to dox him as if you can dox him, but you choose not to. <laughs> hey, uh, I mean, I probably couldn't, but I've not tried either. I, I, I'm sure... There's a lot of people trying, you know, through all kinds of ways to figure it out and do, you know, or do the James Lobb thing. Well, he did he did the opposite, but he did this. Uh, did you see his presentation about Helvini not being Satoshi? Yeah, the he, one he with the disproved. sleeping patterns and stuff like that, where he looked at so much data. Well, yeah, but also literally like Helvini being on, running a marathon at the same time that Satoshi was coding or emailing or that kind of stuff like i'm sure you could dive into all kinds of trenches if you if you really try uh and then probably you would still fail what i'm saying is i also didn't try i i don't it's not I, i'm not interested in trying do you have a favorite satoshi candidate <laughs> um uh, i do I do, I, but I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, for me, it's probably Nick Sabo, but anyway. I do suspect that uh, Satoshi is in the book. Let's put it that way. I, I do think Satoshi, other than under his pseudonym, I suspect that he's also in the book under his real name. But um, that's, that's as far as I'll go on this podcast. 
Oh, it's interesting. Now you're going to have to buy the book to find out which names are in there and then exactly. play detective. That's right. You got to give you got to give people some uh, some hook, right? You just gave them. You, you issued a challenge. Said, "Okay, Satoshi is in my book. Buy the book and find out." There you go. Okay, Aaron. I'm not sure if I have any more questions. Except Should we? For... Hey, Flasio. We also we began the interview by saying uh, <laughs> people are mostly interested in getting rich, right? Yeah. I got, a, I got a good quote for that as well. Let me see if I can find it within like 20 seconds. I should be able to. I should be able to. Hang on. This is a good way to end the interview. Did you present this on what Bitcoin did? I did not. I did not. No. So you have an exclusive here. Excellent. That's what I want. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's see. I think I... What is it? Mm-hmm. Yes, I found it. All right. So this is Helvini, right? I think people will have heard the, the quote, but it's still a good way to end. Uh, oh, it's a longer quote than I thought. All right, here we go. As an amusing thought experiment, imagine that Bitcoin is successful and becomes the dominant payment system in use throughout the world. Then the total value of the currency should be equal to the total value of all the wealth in the world. Current estimates of total worldwide household wealth that I found range from 100 trillion to 300 trillion. With 20 million coins, that gives each coin a value of about 10 million. So you're going to get rich, people. (laughs) Yeah. One Bitcoin is going to be $10 million, but one hamburger is going to be 1,000 probably. Uh, Leave that part out. Cut that part off. (laughs) Okay, fine. Inflation is not real. Bitcoin is going up in a void. We're all going to get rich. We're all smart and we're all going to get rich. We're so early. We're so so geniuses, you know? Exactly. Everyone else is stupid. That's the way to end the podcast. Thank you very much, Aaron. And I wanted to ask something very important. Where can people find the book? So you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on the Bitcoin Magazine store. You can also go to thegenesisbook.com and there you'll find all the links you need. You can find me on Twitter at Aaron Van W. Thank you very much, Aaron. And it's good that I finally interview you after so many years. Uh, is, was this the first time? I, of I course. guess so, right? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Okay, great. Finally. It yes. took me five years. <laughs> right. Well done. Congratulations on this on this big achievement. Oh, yeah. You're harder to get than Phil Zimmerman because <laughs> I got him a few months ago. Well, it's, it's been an honor to be on. Likewise. Good luck with your book and I'll see you at conferences. Yes. I stopped the stream. Awesome.